Amen. Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. And if you haven't taken your Bible out yet to turn to that passage, please do. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 22. And we have a really important text and an important subject to talk about today. And the title of the message today is Don't Miss the Point. So let's pray and ask God to help us that we do indeed not miss the point. Father, we come today with a, um, a burden um, in this text to know what you want us to know, to see what you want us to see. And unless you illumine our eyes and open our ears, we will forever be oblivious to what is right in front of us. And so, God, I pray that that would not be the case today from this text. We are asking you, Holy Spirit, to take the words of Scripture and make them like light and fire and heat to our souls. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would provide encouragement to people who've had a bad experience with church or with church people. And because of that, they're suspect of even of you. And we pray that today would be a turning point in their lives. So God, help us today. This is an important text and a complicated one, one that we need to get our minds around because it is the gospel that is at the core. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably could finish um, the following statements for me relatively easy. I'd like you to try. You ready? Here we go. Um, he couldn't see the forest for the... Good. Yeah, that's like the pot calling the kettle... Good. You know, he, he doesn't really know what's going on around him. He's like a frog in hot... Yeah, good. You got it. You passed the test. Good job. All of those little idioms uh, reflect the reality that we all kind of know, and that is this, that sometimes we're just flat-out oblivious to the obvious. I mean, it's right in front of our face and we don't see it. Other people see it and they're like, look, you can't see the forest for the trees. Or you talking about that person like that? That's like the pot calling the kettle black. It's just so obvious. And, and, and sometimes we make those mistakes um, of being oblivious and it's kind of humorous. For instance, you come back from a dinner with some friends and you go to the bathroom and you brush your teeth and you realize the entire dinner you had a piece of food stuck between your two front teeth the whole time. And what was obvious to everybody else, you were completely oblivious of. When it comes to other things in life, it can become a little more serious. For instance, in war, when leaders are oblivious to what's obvious, it's called mission creep or myopic leadership. It's one thing when it's something, when you're going out to dinner with somebody, it's another thing when it's a a war or a battle, but it's completely entirely a different matter when it comes to religion. In fact, being oblivious to the obvious isn't just dangerous When it comes to religion, it's actually tragic. And here's why. Because self-deception, spiritual hypocrisy, and legalism all have at their root an obliviousness to what should be obvious. Some of you grew up in a church like that. I mean, you felt like you were the only one who looked around and said, Doesn't anybody see this? This is a joke. These people don't believe this. They sit here, they say amen, they sing the songs, and they go out, and and so you went out of church for a number of years. Some of you, that wasn't the church experience, it was your home experience. Oh, it just drove you crazy, you'd sit next to your mom or your dad, you'd hear the things they say amen to, you'd hear what they'd sing, and then you knew how they lived, and you were like, this is ridiculous, it's obvious that they don't believe this, but they're oblivious to the fact that we all know what's really going on. See, the problem is, is that too often... The people who know the most are actually not necessarily the most mature. 
You see, because spiritual maturity is not just simply what you know. My definition of spiritual maturity goes like this. It's not what you know, but knowing what's important. See, that, there's a difference between knowing something and then knowing what's really important. Now, we're in the middle of this uh, series on Matthew 11 through 12, which is a, a section that talks about the portraits of Jesus. And what we find here is that Jesus is giving us some pictures of what he's like. Um, and the problem is, is that the more he paints the picture, the more people don't like what they see. In fact, we saw in our very first message that um, Jesus paints a portrait of himself that just completely um, destroys people's expectations, and so they just reject him out of hand. Eh, that's what you think the Messiah is. We know the Messiah, and that's not you. And so they reject him. The next passage we saw was uh, Jesus' words to people who are hard-hearted and heavy-hearted. And remember, we said last week that he comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. Well, today, this passage takes another little portrait for us and makes it clear. And that is that Jesus wants us to see that too often the most religious people in the world really don't get it. They think they do, but they really don't. And the warning from this passage is this. Don't be oblivious to the obvious. Don't be spiritually oblivious to what should be obvious to you. It's right in front of you. And what you're going to see here is that what Jesus is helping them, trying to help them see, is they're so concerned about religion, they're so concerned about Sabbath observance, that they miss the fact that the Lord of the Sabbath is right in front of them. Everything that the Bible was talking about was all prophesying towards Him, and He's standing right in front of them, and they can't get over that He's challenging a little bit of their traditions. And because of that, they miss Him. So, the reality is we all tend to do that in various ways. And especially for those of us who've grown up in church, who are familiar with Bible stories and know a lot about what the Bible says, we have to be really warned about this. Those of us trying to raise children and help them understand the claims of Scripture and how God has claims upon their life, and we've got to really get this in our hearts because it's possible for us to raise kids in an environment or put them in a, a, a church a kind of um, educational model or even in the context of uh, discipleship and have them really miss what they really should know. They can be oblivious to the obvious, and we can actually teach him that it's that way. So I want to help you to try and understand why this is such a big deal and what we can do about it. The first thing is this from verses 1 to 8, and that is that don't miss the greater for the lesser. This is the first lesson. Don't miss the greater for the lesser. Let me bottom line this as to what we're going to talk about. It's the fact that Jesus is telling them, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one that the Old Testament prophets talked about. I'm right here in your midst, and you're on me about breaking a Sabbath rule. Let's see what happens. Matthew accounts, uh, it begins here by informing us that Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and because they were hungry, his disciples picked some grain to eat. That's verse 1. It says, at this time, Jesus went through grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, in order to understand this, you've got to know some background. First, let's talk about the Sabbath. Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. Uh, it was celebrated on Saturday. We celebrate uh, Lord's Day on Sunday. And the Sabbath observance was a really important part of the, the Jewish mind and their experience. It, it came from the fact that God rested on the seventh day. And so it set them apart 
from all of their culture by the way in which they treated the seventh day, this day of rest, this Sabbath. So for them, not only was circumcision a big deal sign, but also the Sabbath observance set them apart from the rest of their culture. And for them, it became part of their identity. I mean, really religious Jews really loved the Sabbath, and they really focused on what the Sabbath meant. In fact, so important was it that um, 160 years before Christ came on the scene, uh, a rebellion in Israel happened called the Maccabean Rebellion. And in one moment, there was a slaughter of the Jewish forces because the opposing army attacked them on the Sabbath day and the soldiers refused to fight because it was the Sabbath and they were killed. So when we talk about Sabbath's a big deal, you just need to know it's a really big deal. And the observance of that Sabbath was, was central to their, their identity as a people. So you also need to know something about farming. In Israel, according to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, when a farmer harvested his crops, he was required by law to leave the outer edge of the field unharvested. He could take what was inside, but on the outside of that field, he had to leave a number of rows unharvested so that people who were in need, uh, folks who had benevolent needs, could come and get something to eat. Or they could pick grain and then have their needs met. And so it was a system of the way in which the people who had fields could take care of those who didn't. Now, it's important for you to know this because the disciples, as they're walking through this field on the Sabbath day, they pick these, this grain. It wasn't illegal to pick grain. Okay? It's not like going to Walmart and eating a Milky Way bar and then putting it in your pocket and walking out the door. Okay? It's not like that. It, it's more like going to Sam's Club on Saturday at noon, okay? That's more what it's like, right? So you shop and kids are like, we're hungry. I know, let's go to Sam's Club. Let's go, let's go shopping and we'll forage and eat. And so yeah, it's kind of like that. So you walk around, it's part of the culture. And apparently you know what I'm talking about. So, so the problem here was not what they did, okay? But it was when they did it. That's the key. So they didn't do anything illegal. Nothing wrong with them picking grain, if they're hungry, the challenge was the fact that they did it on the wrong day. They did it on the Sabbath. So, Pharisees in verse 2, get on Jesus. says, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So, the Pharisees are looking at Jesus' disciples and saying, They're not supposed to do that. That's not allowed. we got a rule about that. What's going on here? Well, the Pharisees, um, years earlier, in the tradition of rabbinic literature, had taken the commandment about resting on the Sabbath. And what they had done was to create a series of laws or rules to try and help people be sure that they didn't violate the Sabbath. And so they created a number of other man-made interpretations of what people should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath. Okay, so you got the law right here, and in a desire, at first, uh, probably a good desire in their hearts to try and help people obey, they then began to make little rules about what it meant to obey on the Sabbath. And so, rather than just leaving the commandment as it was, they began to make man-made rules moving further and further and further away from the actual command to try and protect people so that they wouldn't violate the Sabbath. Well, the problem is the more rules they made, the further they got away from what real obedience was. And before they knew it, they're more concerned about the man-made rules that they made, and they missed the heart of the commandment in the first place. And that always happens when men and women start to make their rules to protect people from disobeying God or to protect God from having people offend Him. Now, 
The challenge is, is that these Pharisees developed all of these rules and people couldn't distinguish between what God said and what they said. For instance, um, in the Mishnah, the rabbis tried to help people understand what the word work means. So somebody must have at one time went to a rabbi and said, hey, it says we're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but like, what does that mean? Does that mean like this or does it mean like that? And, and rather than saying, look, you got to wrestle with that, they said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll get the rabbis together and we'll determine what real work is on Sabbath and what is it. And we'll come up with a handbook on what you can do and what you can't do. And the thing is, is people love it when you do that. You know why? Because now you got a box. And now you don't have to think anymore. Now you don't have to wrestle. You don't have to think, oh, is this working? Is it not? Is this obeying the heart of it? Now someone says, do this, don't do this. And you're like, bonus, I can go in that box and feel righteous. And then guess what I get to do? This is gravy. Now I get to judge people on this. This is great. I love this. And honestly, we love it that way. So the Pharisees develop a list of things that are work. Here's the list of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. You ready? You couldn't sow. You couldn't plow. You couldn't reap. You couldn't polish. You couldn't grind. You can make two loops, and no, you you couldn't make two loops, so you can make one. You can weave two. You couldn't weave two threads, and you couldn't undo two threads. So here's the deal: if you're going to go on the Sabbath day, and your kid's got a knot in his shoe, well, you can untie one knot, but you can't do the other one. Okay? So your kids come to the church. It's like, what happened? Well, we're obeying the Sabbath, so you got undie, untie one, but not two. Um, sorry, guys, but you couldn't hunt a deer on the Sabbath, let alone dress it, flay it, or salt it. You can't write two letters, nor can you erase two letters. Apparently, you could erase or write one. You can't build up. You can't tear down. You can't kindle. You can't extinguish. You can't hit anything with a hammer. And you can't carry anything from place to place. Unless, of course, and here were the funny exceptions, if you carried that thing place to place, true, this is Mishnah Shabbat 10.3, if you carried that thing on the top of your hand, that was allowed, or with your foot, that's funny, come on, come on, come on, come on, right? Or on your ear... Whatever. Dude, you got a big ear. I know I'm like lifting on the Sabbath, you know, so thing. Or in your shoe. So they, they had all these crazy rules. And, and how did this happen? It happened because people love those rules. Because now they can define the box. Now they can decide what, it, what the real meaning of work is. And as you can imagine, these rules became difficult, and yet they loved it that way. So here's the irony. The irony is that the rules that were meant to protect the Sabbath actually missed the point of Sabbath. So they, they were trying to protect the Sabbath, and then they end up changing it so it doesn't even feel like the kind of Sabbath that God had intended. So the Sabbath was supposed to be about restful and worshipful reminder of who God is. But instead, the Sabbath became more about rules than rest, more about conformity than the Creator, and more about the definition of work than the display of God's glory. And that's what always happens when we end up trying to put God in a box. So to combat this, Jesus gives two examples of how oblivious the Pharisees were as to what should be obvious. The first example he gives is in verse 4 of David, who, while he was running from King Saul, uh, flees to a priest who then gives him, because his men are so hungry, the holy bread or the bread of the presence. You could think of it like communion bread, bread that was supposed to remain kind of in a worship area and you weren't supposed to eat it. It would sort of be how, how just utterly just appalled you would be if we were all set up for a communion service and one of your kids came in and were like, hey, I'm hungry, and they started taking the grape juice and and eating the bread. You'd be like, whose kids are these? Where are these? Where's their parents? You'd start thinking, what's going on here? And, and you'd be offended because this isn't like consumption bread. This is ceremonial bread. Well, that's what happened here except that David's men were hungry, and then 
Jesus says about David and the, the, this whole experience that even though David ate the bread that was reserved for worship, he wasn't condemned by God for his actions. Verse 3, he said, Have you not read that when David, uh, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, he entered the house of God, ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for priests? So that's case number one. Case number two is then he points to the law in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So what does he mean there? Well, he says, look, the priests are the ones who are working all day long on the Sabbath day. So you say they're not supposed to work, but the priests, they work all day and they're not guilty of their work. In fact, they're blessed. And so he uses two examples, one from David and one from the law. So what exactly is Jesus saying? Is he somehow endorsing a kind of situational ethics? You know, whatever the end game is, go ahead and do that. Whatever feels right or whatever you think is right. No, he's not doing that. What's happened here is that the Pharisees, because of their man-made rules, have actually created a perceived ethical problem when there isn't one. They're creating a situational scenario when there there shouldn't even be an issue. Because of their effort to try and protect the law, they've created a new law, and in creating that new law, they've actually made people more in bondage when they were trying to help them obey. It's crazy how that happens, but it happens all the time. So, what does Jesus say to this? Well, he gives them uh, three important statements that point them back to the center of really the heart of what the gospel is and and who Jesus is. And those three statements are, first, in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's, That's a pretty strong statement to make. Something greater than even the temple is here, which is me. I'm even greater than the temple. And then verse 7, he says this, And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Okay, what's happening here is Jesus went to trash talking. (laughs) He says, if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quotation of the law. And these guys were students of the law. And he says, in effect, you don't even know your own law. You don't even, if you'd known that, you wouldn't condemn the guilty. And then finally he says, verse 8, here's the, the, the preeminent statement of this passage, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what is Jesus saying here? He's in effect saying that they're missing the fact that all of this stuff was supposed to point to him. A little sidebar here. Just One of the reasons why our mission statement as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus is because at the end of the day, what we long for and what I want my legacy to be here is not did he teach you the Bible, not that he leads you in prayer, as good as those things are, not that we grow and see people come to Christ. At the end of the day, what I want is do these people love Jesus more? That's what I want. That's what I yearn for, that our children from the youngest to the oldest senior citizen, from the person who's just received Christ, like I met a young man after the second service who received Christ after our fresh encounter service on Sunday night, was in here, prayed for, God convicted him, he received Jesus. I want that guy, 30 years from now, to be really in love with Jesus, not really infatuated with church, program, stuff, staff, all that. I could care less if he can parse a Greek word if he doesn't love Jesus. I want him to love Jesus. So this point is, is this, you got all hung up about the Sabbath day and you're missing the fact that the Lord of the Sabbath is right in front of you. What's happening here is they're treating minor rules like major rules and they're way out of balance. 
They're neglecting the very heart of the Bible, the very point of the law, with their regulations. They're neglecting mercy. They don't even realize that Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, is supreme even over their regulations. He's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the Sabbath. All those things were meant to point to Him. He's the promised Messiah. He's the Son of David. He's the full manifestation of the presence of God. He is everything they would ever need. And they look at Him and go, well, yeah, but your disciples picked grain. <laughs> they, they, they can't separate their box from who Jesus is. Listen to me. This is what happens when religion gets off center. You end up missing the greater for the lesser. You miss Jesus in the midst of everything about Jesus. What I want is to help some of you tomorrow morning when you read your Bibles that you'd read them differently. That you'd read it not as a textbook on Christianity, but a love letter from Christ. And it happens so easily that we get off. It happens so easily that, that, that Christianity and this concept of what it means to be a follower of Jesus suddenly begins to shift. It happens when you sing about Him, but don't worship Him. There's a difference, you know. When you listen to His words, but you don't hear Him. When you're busy serving Him, but you're not doing it as unto Him. When you develop rules out of allegiance to Him, only to find your love decreasing for Him. When you defend Him, but do it in a manner completely unlike Him. When you talk about Him, but not to Him. When you love to be a people, you love to be around people who know Him, but you don't know Him. You see, the reality is, is it's tragically easy to miss the greater for the lesser, and it often happens to people who consider themselves to be religious because they're oblivious to the obvious. They, they, they've not, they're not in love with Jesus. They're in love with church. They're in love with rules. They're in love with, with, with religion. They're in love with change. They're in love with counseling. They're in love with all the stuff that was meant to point us to Jesus, but they don't talk about Jesus. No, they don't love Jesus. They just love all the stuff that comes with Jesus. When I candidated here, I told you a story, and forgive me for telling it again, but it, in my mind, captures the a best illustration that I can give this to you. you. You'll remember this. You won't remember other things, and I hope that this will just kind of sear in your memory um, this truth. Um, my family and I were at a Taco Bell um, getting ready for Wednesday night church, and we were trying to grab a meal quick and then get back to church. We're there having a good family time, eating our tacos, talking about the day, and all of a sudden this, this suburban pulls up to the side of the uh, entrance to the um, Taco Bell, and this woman jumps out of the car she slams her door <clears throat> she comes in taco bell and you can tell just by i mean she's like you know and uh, she's like really ticked off about something and so we're like eating our tacos as we're going like huh you know what's going on over here and so yeah we're, we're people watchers too like you are and so you know we're unapologetically gawkers so we're there and uh, and she comes up to the, the the thing and my boys are like dad what's going on and i'm like shh quiet 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 let's watch it here <laughs> I'm thinking in my mind, you know, maybe this could be a sermon illustration someday. So here it comes. So, so she comes up to the counter at the Taco Bell, and she's just torped. And she's like, get the manager out here. So the manager comes out, and, um, and he's like, can I help you, man? And she opens up her bag. And she's like, I've been in that line for seven minutes, and I walked, came around, and I still don't have my taco. 
She said, and worse, now I'm going to be late for church. And I'm sitting over there going, and don't come to mine, okay? <laughs> Holy cow. She, you know, she's oblivious to the obvious. She, that's, that's, that's the problem. And, you know, it would just be a funny story if it was just her, but you can think probably in your life, like a kind of mind, of many, many ways in which I have been just oblivious to the obvious. Just blatant, silly hypocrisy. Just blatant. Um, categories of what righteousness is while neglecting something else that God thinks is more important. So the warning here is beware, church people, that you don't neglect the greater for the lesser. Here's the second lesson. Don't miss the special for the normal in verses 9 to 14. text says that Jesus went on from there and entered a synagogue. Verse 10, there was a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, and they asked him, Pharisees, Good after Jesus. Is it lawful, biblical? Is it biblical to heal on the Sabbath? Don't you love that? See, some people really get juiced about these kind of discussions. They want to know what's your position on, what's your standard here, what's your view on this, what's your view of this. And they're always talking about views and, and positions and ideas and concepts. And what's remarkably absent from the conversation is any mention of Jesus. And see, these guys want to know, so what's your position on healing people on the Sabbath day? While well, this guy with a withered hand is standing right there in the synagogue. So their motive, verse 10, is to accuse him. So Jesus then responds by asking them a rhetorical question, and he appeals really to their common sense. He asks them a question about how they would treat their own sheep. He sets up the scenario this way in verse 11. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? So Jesus creates this scenario. You got the sheep and it falls into a pit and you find it and it's on the Sabbath day and you look down and there's your little sheep at the bottom of the pit. It's going, blah, blah, help, help. And you look down and you're like, oh, look at the, and you, your kids come next to you and they're like, daddy, daddy, Lammy's in the pit. Daddy, go down and get Lammy. Blah, help, help. And you're there and you lean over to your little child and go, oh, I'm sorry, honey, little Lammy's down in the pit. The problem is it's the Sabbath day. Sabbath day, well, well, and, and and yeah, we can't rescue the we can't rescue little lamby because we can't do any work, and Daddy can't rescue the lamb out of the pit today because it's the, it's the Sabbath. If we just wait like six or seven hours, hopefully Lamby will still be alive. Then we can go and get her out of the pit, and everything will be okay. And, and then Luke ramps it up. Luke's account of this makes it even more dramatic. He says, "Skip the lamb thing. Your son falls in a well." Now it just got ramped up even bigger. So you got your son fell in a well. He's down there doing the doggy paddle thing. Dad, help, help. You come over and you're like, oh, son, what happened? I fell in the well, Dad. Come on, get me out. Uh, why'd you have to fall in the well on the Sabbath? Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, you're swimming great. Keep swimming, son, because it's uh, uh, got like nine hours till the sun goes down. Then we'll come and rescue. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. It's Sabbath. I can't. Jesus says, look, a normal person would see the lamb, pull it out, and everybody around would go, oh, yeah, that's a good call. That's a good call, yeah. Your son's in the bottom of the well. No, It's a good call to say, Hold, you, forget the Sabbath, here's a rope, let's get you out of there. People would look at that and go, yeah, that, that's the right call. That's the right call. See, it's just a, a common sense thing. It just makes sense that that's what you would do. And so Jesus, appealing to their sensibilities, says, look, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, verse 12. Here's the heart of it. 
It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, the Pharisees have made so many rules about the Sabbath and its observance that they can't even recognize what's really valuable anymore. They can't even recognize what's really special versus what is normal. And here's what's happened. The normal obedience to the Sabbath created an abnormal sense of what was really special. The Pharisees probably thought they even agreed with Jesus. Well, sure, you can do good on the Sabbath, but this guy, it's not a matter of life and death. His shriveled hand, he can wait eight hours. So they would rather have told that man, even though the healer is here and he can meet your needs right now, you've got to wait till the sun goes down so we don't violate the Sabbath. That's how rigid it was. They have so many rules about righteousness that they don't even know what real righteousness is anymore. That happens, folks. Spend so much time talking about what you can do, can't do, can do, can do, and yet you don't talk in your home, your Sunday school classes, or your small groups about the heart of the gospel. You don't talk about grace and forgiveness and mercy. I, I love what Jesus does next. Even though he knows that they're trying to trap him, and even though he knows that it's going to tick him off, he heals the man. You see, Jesus is unrelenting in his passion for real righteousness, even if it makes some people uncomfortable. Some of you have lived for a long time under this banner of I can't offend a legalistic person because I don't want to cause a weaker brother to stumble. And to some extent that's true, but here's the deal. People are not allowed to be professionally weak. <laughs> They're not allowed to be weak forever. They've got to grow up. They've got to move beyond. You, 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 you limit your rights to that brother for a while, that sister for a while. But after a while, that brother sister has got to grow up. And if they don't grow up, how long? I don't know how long. Don't ask me to make that rule. You've got to figure it out before God and the Spirit of God in your life. But eventually you say, you know what? We have given and given and given, and now it's time to embrace our freedom. And if they're ticked off, then that's something they're going to have to take before the Lord. So there's a freedom that needs to be embraced. Jesus heals him, no matter what they thought. Now notice what the Pharisees take away from this experience. They aren't humbled, they aren't thoughtful, they aren't convicted. No, what do they do? They get together, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. So get this, they're mad at him about violating their rules on the Sabbath, so they get together to figure out how to break the sixth commandment. Wow. It's funny if it wasn't so sad. The church is split over issues that look just like this. I had a father after our first service come up to me with tears in his eyes. He said, Mark, you preach this hard every message because I have two daughters that are away from Christ because I got involved in a church ministry when it was all about the externals, and I rode them throughout their lives, and now they want nothing to do with Christ, and it's mostly my fault. God can get them. We prayed for his daughter, that God would return the beauty of Christ to her, that people have squandered. You may be like that today. You may be here, and you're just like, yeah, I did that church thing. I, I did that Christian home thing, and it was really weird. And I wish I could just apologize or ask for forgiveness for all Christians for you so you could somehow kind of reset. I can't do that. But what I can do is show you what Jesus is supposed to look like and pray that God by His Spirit would give you an appetite to see Him for what He really is. 
But that also means, moms and dads, that we have to continue to lay before our kids. And when you disciple someone, a new convert, and, and even just preach it to our own hearts, that we have to be sure we understand who Jesus is and what he's like. And to be reminded that at the end of the day, our end game is not knowledge. It's not information. It's not even orthodoxy, as important as it is. The end game is Jesus. That's the end game. And the question is, do you know him? I mean, do you really know him? Do you love him? Do you worship him? Do you read about him? Do you get juiced about him? Okay, little warning. I'm going to step on your toes just a little bit more here on this one. When you woke up this morning and your kids hung around you, do they know that you're excited about what's going to happen at 1140? Or do they know that you're more excited about what's going to happen at 3 o'clock today? See, the reality is our, our, our peop- the people around us, they may not remember everything that we say, but they will remember everything we're passionate about. And nothing wrong with what's going to happen at 3 o'clock today. Go Colts. So nothing's going to happen at 3 o'clock. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. But my question is, in regards to passion and affections, don't be oblivious to the obvious. So... The Pharisees are self-deceived, they're judgmental, and in the name of protecting what's right, they're prepared to create the, they're preparing to create, to commit rather, the greatest crime in human history. So you might wonder, well, how in the world does this happen? How, how do you get there? Let me just give you a couple observations. When your Bible reading begins to be about information rather than knowing and understanding Christ, watch out. When your prayer time is more about the spiritual needs of other people than your own. When you measure people based upon your standards. You meet them and you're immediately sizing them up. Where do they fit on the scale of? When all your friends start to look like you, act like you, talk like you. You know what that's called? A cult. (laughs) When your tones are immediately caustic with people who are different than you. When you've not sacrificed anything in a really long time. When Christianity isn't, no, any, isn't costly for you anymore. When your words are more critical and negative than they are positive, watch out. You could be beginning to get spiritual tunnel vision. On December 29th, 1972, an Eastern Airlines um, uh, jet went down in the Everglades in Florida. And when they recovered the black box and they figured out why, 110 people died in this plane crash. What they discovered was remarkable and, frankly, a bit scary. You see, the pilots were concerned because the landing gear light bulb on the dash of the plane wasn't working. And so they were trying to figure out what's wrong with this light. Why won't it light? The, 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 the landing gear is up, but the light won't come on. What's, what's the deal? And so they're focused on this light, and little do they know that the plane is dropping altitude as they're focused on this bulb, and before they knew it, they were too close, and they crashed in the Everglades. 110 people died because the pilots were more concerned about a light bulb than they were the elevation of the plane. And that happens when it comes to spirituality. All right, finally, don't miss the gospel for religion. It's strange here that in the middle of this um, passage, Matthew throws in a quotation from Isaiah Chapter 42, he says, first of all, in verse 15, that Jesus drew away, he healed people, but told them not to talk about him. But then he talks about this thing from Isaiah, and it's a really strange insert at first. One commentator, however, really helped me understand what's going on here. He described it this way. It's as though Matthew pulls back the dark clouds of unbelief, and he allows us to see the crystal blue sky of the gospel. What Matthew does, he brings us back to the mission of what Jesus is all about. What do I mean by the gospel? Here's the gospel. It is that men and women are sinners, 
wretchedly lost, incapable of saving themselves, and God in his mercy sent his only son to die on a cross so that sinful people could receive forgiveness and be cleansed of their sins, have new hearts, and love God when they would never have loved him before. That is the gospel. That's the difference between heaven and hell. If you believe that and receive that, the Bible says you're a new creature. If not, you're still under judgment. Now the problem is that for many of us, we're like, oh yeah, that's old news, the gospel, I got that. That's how I got saved. That's not just how you got saved. Listen to me. That is how you live every day for the rest of your life. In the light of this amazing reality of the beauty of what's happened to you in Christ. And if you lose the beauty, you will quickly Change how you view a relationship with Christ and you will become not Christ-like. So Isaiah 42, look, look at all the things that it describes him as. First, Jesus is the chosen servant of God. God's hand is on him. Next, he has God's full approval. God is happy with his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He loves him. There's a close relationship with the father and the son. He's empowered by the spirit. Jesus is not acting on his own. He's the spirit-empowered one. He's the Messiah. That's what it means. Christ, the chosen one, the one upon whom the spirit rests. His ministry is to proclaim justice. Notice what it says. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles in verse 18. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. So he'll have a, a ministry that is meek, it's mild, it's power under control. Verse 20. Oh, this is precious. He, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What does that mean? It means that a reed that's been bruised, meaning it's kind of cracked and it's starting to bend, and all it would take is a little bit of wind, and that reed would completely crack and fall over. Or a smoldering wick, like a light that's just about to go out. It flickers and flickers and flickers, and Jesus describes, or Matthew rather quotes Isaiah in describing Jesus' demeanor towards people like this. He is full of compassion and mercy. Meaning, if you're here today, and you're you're like a wick about ready to go out. You're about ready to say, you know what? Enough of this. I can't deal with this. I've been so hurt. I've got so much pain. I've got so much sin. I've done so many things wrong. Jesus, in effect, through this passage, says to you today, I know that you feel like you've been bruised and you're about ready to be buried, but I'm the risen Christ and I can give you new life in me. And so he treats people with immeasurable kindness. He's meek, he's full of compassion, and finally, his name brings freedom and hope to the world until he brings justice, 20b and verse 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So the gospel is centered on Jesus, and the fruit is hope, that Jesus offers hope to no, Jesus offers hope like no one else because no one else is like him. Nobody can bring freedom and mercy like Christ can. And if you get this, you know why the writer said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The problem is, is that over time, grace can become less than amazing. The gospel is good news that Jesus came to bring freedom and mercy to sinful and hopeless people. The gospel means mercy, grace, and kindness, and hope comes to people through the person and work of Jesus. The gospel means that God now creates a love in your heart for His Word and for Him and His church and a love for obedience that you know could never come from your own heart because you know how wicked it is. And so there is this overwhelming sense that everything I have and everything I hope to be and anything that I do is only because of the mercy and grace of a God who loved me and gave his only son for me. That is the gospel. And if you lose the center of that reality in your life, you will make a weird religion. It will not be centered in Christ and it will not reflect right righteousness. 
So this morning I want to bring you back to the gospel and invite you, no matter if you've known Christ as a little child or you've known him all your life, to preach the gospel to yourself. One person said the gospel is not a class that you take, it is the building that all classes meet in. It's the sum total. It is the entire thing. We need this because the gospel can become less than amazing and therefore we can become less than Christ-like while claiming to be a Christian. Do not lose the transfixed beauty of an amazing gospel on our sinful hearts. Or you will talk more about rules. You will talk more about standards. You will talk more about all these things that you're trying to do to protect obedience in your heart when the reality is He put His Spirit in your heart and He's given you the Word and He set you free. Now follow Him and love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you have to do it in the power and the reality of the gospel. So if you think about this, it will change even how you see life. I was thinking about this all weekend, how to say this, how to frame this, and I ran into somebody in um, another city where I was on Saturday, and this person had a shirt on, and the words on the shirt were, I can do bad all by myself. Apparently it's a movie or something that's out, I don't know. I can do bad all by myself. And I was thinking about the gospel, and I saw this person's shirt, and I I said, you know, that's like scripture on your t-shirt there. Like, What? said, yeah, I can do bad all by myself. The Bible completely agrees with that. Absolutely. The Bible says, yeah, you do really bad all the time. They're like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> I said, but see, the, the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus came to set you free from that statement. He came to change your heart, so now everything you do by His power and His blood now makes you do righteousness. But you can never do that. You know why? Because you do bad all by yourself. So that just came out. You know why? Because I'm thinking about the gospel. I'm meditating, I'm thinking that, so I see this t-shirt, I'm like, bam, that's the gospel right there. So beware of the possibility of being spiritually oblivious to the obvious. Pray, plead, ask God to guard your heart from becoming the kind of person who would view things that are not great in God's eye and not costly in His kingdom, and you would see them through the wrong lens. Pray that you will know what the gospel is all about so that you don't miss the point. And pray, oh pray, that your children don't miss the point. Pray that our teenagers do not miss the point. Pray that college students do not miss the point. And pray that we lay before them a glorious gospel so that when the storms of life come or the temptations of the enemy are thrown their way or when rules and regulations tempt them in terms of this is where real righteousness is, they will know, no, 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 I know the gospel and I know Jesus and I love him with all my heart. Don't miss Jesus because he's the point. Lord, I pray that you would exalt your own name today through this text. Lord, I pray that through your word there would be an openness within the hearts of people who have known you for a long time to consider if they're really hitting the target in their own heart and how they view Christianity in their homes in how they are discipling people. Lord, bring us back to what we know we should know, but we sometimes lose. The beauty, the passion, the love of the gospel. So make grace amazing again to some people, Lord. Please. And then, Father, for some here who... There has to be some who have just really had it with the church, and they've got probably some good reasons. I pray that today you would bring them back to a personal relationship with you. Woo them with the beauty of who you are. Eclipse the pain of the past, 
with a beautiful vision of who you are. Help them to know you and to see you and today perhaps even receive you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there'll be some counselors up here at the front. If you need some folks to pray with you today, they're here, available and ready for you, okay? Hey, God bless you. I love you folks. Thanks for coming today.